All right. We have a great episode of Side Retired, the MLB podcast coming at you guys today. It'll be Dylan and Matt, as always. And we're going to be joined by a very special guest. We have Mark Sheldon of MLB.com joining us today. So let's hit the intro music and we'll get right into this. Hello and welcome to this edition of Side Retire, the MLB podcast. It's Dylan Campione and Matt Potter, as always. Matt, how are you doing on this Tuesday morning? Doing pretty well. It's snowing here in South Bend, so not exactly baseball weather, but hopefully uh, hopefully nothing too bad. I love it. And today we are joined very special guest Mark Sheldon. He is a beat reporter for the Cincinnati Reds. He's been with MLB.com for over 20 years at this point. Mr. Sheldon, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And don't call me Mr. Sheldon. It makes me <laughs> oh, absolutely. But the first question we'd like to start off with you is that you've obviously been around the Cincinnati Reds for a lot of years. So what is it like covering a team like Cincinnati? I know one of the smaller markets in baseball, but definitely a lot of fun stuff that's happened in your 15 plus years there. Yeah, it's certainly a smaller market team, but it's it's one of the it is the oldest team in professional baseball. So there's a lot of history. It's not a an expansion team and it's not a, a team without a Without any history, they, they've they've had his, they've five, won five World Series. They've had moments of contending. Certainly, right now they're on a championship drought that's over thirty years now. So that's been a, a, a source of uh, consternation for the market and the and the fans in the city. But uh, but it, it's always been enjoyable. I love baseball, and I've been fortunate for all these years. Next season will be my twenty fourth season. Is to be able to do my two passions. I guess I like I like writing and reporting, and I love baseball and I can do those things for a career and it's been very rewarding and it's been very uh, fun most of the times it's also hard work and it comes with a lot of nights and weekends and times away from my family and uh, that's always tough but it's it's just been a rewarding job and I'm, I'm very grateful to have it absolutely you know I think maybe not everybody realizes how much of a grind it is because they just, you know, they like to see their news feed and, and see the stories that you guys write. But can you, can you walk us through the process of how you got into it? You know, maybe it was in college, maybe even high school or, or post-college. I got into beat, uh, beat reporting. Yeah. I kind of, I don't want to say wandered into it. It, it was, it was, uh, but I was in the right place at the right time. I, I was in the late nineties. I was working for ESPN uh, on the assignment desk. And, and quite frankly, I wasn't enjoying it very much. Um, and uh, I made the decision to to leave ESPN without a job, and I moved back to Cincinnati and started graduate school at Xavier uh, to get my sports management uh, master's degree. And while I was doing that, I, I ended up working for uh, a TV station here, the NBC affiliate. I, I'd worked for them in the mid-90s before I went to ESPN, but they were starting a website and uh with a company called internet broadcasting and i got a job to work on their website and the website was owned by a minnesota company internet broadcasting and in the process of doing that for a couple of years uh the internet broadcasting one of the bosses went over to the twins to be their coo so at some point i i applied for a job at mlb.com when it was new it was launching in 01 
and he was a, he wrote me a recommendation letter and because of that and then mlb.com needed beat writers they were hiring beat writers for every every team i was fortunate even though it was kind of late in the process i was fortunate in march of 01 before opening day to get the twins beat and that's how i ended up up there and and i kind of felt my way through it for a, you know a couple of years before i really understood what i needed to do and how to do it we didn't travel the first year but once we started traveling in 02 I really did get a sense of the the day in, the day out, the grind, the the working till late at night and then getting two hours of sleep and catching a flight <laughs> the next morning to the next city and, and all those things that come with the job and and just working late and getting up early, day games after night games. I've had 18 inning games, 19 inning games. So it, it, you kind of learn those things throughout the years. And sometimes you, you write your best stories and sometimes you, you don't write a great story. But the best part is you always have a chance to do it again the next day. Absolutely. And what do you think is sort of the biggest difference in the job? Because I know you're still reporting from 2001 to 2023. It's still covering a baseball team. But is there something that's really different about the job? Well, certainly it's social media and, and the 24 hour on the clock thing is always a big thing. I mean, even with Internet. And it's certainly this is an Internet company. You know, one, I, I always had the expectation that my job was around the clock. So I, I, I'm not complaining about that. But what is different is the the social media aspect and breaking stories on Twitter or, uh, you know, things like that. And certainly now there's there's there's, it, there's been an explosion of other ways of getting baseball information, whether it's on podcasts or on video or social media. Uh, my, my son follows MLB through uh, through TikTok and, and Instagram. And 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 so there's it, just so much a proliferation, a proliferation, excuse me, of how you get your information and how it has to be reported. And, and a lot, you know, we do newsletters now. I do video beat reports. I have, we, we just have many different avenues to deliver information. And so it's not just write a story and go home. And that's how it was when I first started. And now it's just so much more than that. Absolutely. And, you know, with, with B reporting, you, you obviously get your sources from, from, you know, inside the team, from probably friends that, you know, within the industry, um, you know, when you say sources say in a tweet or, or something like that, what does that actually mean? Cause Dylan and I, we, we've been talking about this for a while. We don't fully understand what sources <laughs> say actually means. Well, it's just like anything else in, in the news delivery business, whether it's political reporting, baseball reporting, crime reporting, there are times when when people are willing to tell you the information, but they don't want their name out there uh, as the person that that told you. And there could be a variety of reasons to this. Though. Some of it could be legal. Some of it can be they don't want to uh, they want to tell you the information, but they don't want to tell you that it came from them because they don't want to hurt their their standing with the club or with their agency. If it's an agent, people, um, if it could be a player and things like that. So there's a lot of when you say it's a source, you're basically saying, I'm telling you as a reporter that I, I feel like this information is solid. I'm getting it from a person I trust. And I am hopefully you guys trust me to deliver it. And I won't reveal the source. That's that's part of it is if I get this information, I will not out who who told me. And, and that's the best uh, the way I can go about kind of explaining it. But that's kind of how we started out with uh, the whole source reporting in the 70s with Woodward and Bernstein and, and, and Watergate. and I'm not saying that baseball reporting is anywhere near that level, but it's 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 kind of how sometimes the business gets done. 
No, and we've definitely reached that time of year where this is key sources confirm or sources are saying type of season. I know next week of the winter meetings will definitely be something similar like that. On that subject, do you go to the winter meetings or what is it sort of like in the off season, the day to day grind of being a beat reporter? Yeah, in the off season, it's it's really different. It, it, it during the season, you more or less. I know it's a twenty four hour on con on call thing, but in the in this in the season, you can kind of like count on. A, a very fixed schedule. You know, you have to be at the park by two thirty. You know, you're going to be there till midnight or twelve thirty. You go home. You can sleep. You, you know, there's you can set your clock to kind of the, the the rhythms of the season. In the off season, you kind of move to a uh, almost like a doctor schedule where <laughs> you, you you work during the day, but you're on call at night, and you might get called with a trade or a manager firing or a free agent signing and all these things. So. Uh, October is generally the quietest off-season month because if the Reds are not in the playoffs, there's generally it's generally frowned upon to have transactions during the postseason. Certainly, there's been a few here over the years, and certainly the you know hiring and firing of a manager often happens in October. And then you move into November, and things start accelerating when the World Series gets over. And then uh, the at the very beginning of December, it really picks up because this weekend is Reds Fest. It's the two-day fan fest on Friday and Saturday, and then always, almost always, the Sunday after Reds Fest, I'm on on my way to the winter meetings, and then spend that week. You know, this year it's in Nashville, so I'll drive to Nashville this year, and I go every year to wherever it's at, and and then you're you're kind of in a hotel lobby for the better part of four <laughs> days, hoping to get something going to the suite of the club and having a daily briefing with the general manager, the president of baseball operations. And then after the the winter meetings is over, you kind of have a little quiet period for the holidays. And then January, it really accelerates again. You, you get more moves. A lot of the players that fell through the cracks or the, the the not top tier free agents start signing. And then for the Reds, they have their caravan by the end of January. And then two weeks after that is, is mid-February and you're off to spring training. So it, it, it's got a rhythm. I've gotten used to it over these years. I... I'm grateful to have the job. I'll never complain about it, but there is definitely a, 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 a it's a change for the everybody where you go, you kind of have different seasons, so to speak, within the baseball career, baseball writing career. For sure. And as you said, the, the off season is very busy, but if you could point out, you know, your, your biggest story, maybe you broke it first or you helped to break it first um, from the off season. What's, what's your most memorable off season or off season story that, that you've, you've written? It's hard to say. I know I had when Joey Votto signed his first contract, not the big 10 year contract, but he had like a three year, $38 million contract. And I, I recall being first with that one. And I want to say that was 2009, maybe, maybe 2010. And I remember I had that I, in spring training. Homer Bailey had a signed a six year contract. And I think I had that one or at least part of it. You know, nowadays, that's the thing. You know, we talk about scoops and how big scoops are. One of the sad things, I guess, in a way, is this, the, the the you almost want to say rip to scoops because <laughs> how often, even if you get one, and it's nice to have one, you know, in the old days, and this is before I even got into the business, you know, you broke a scoop on a newspaper. It's on the front page of the New York Times. Well, their competitors have to wait a whole day to <laughs> be able to catch up and, and, and deliver that same information or maybe advance the story. And now I could break the biggest story. I could drop an anvil on the head of all my competitors. <laughs> and if I have that scoop, I may have it for five minutes. 
<laughs> and then MLB trade rumors puts it out. And next thing you know, everyone has it. And it's the, 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 the scoop mentality is almost has to change to let's report the story better. It's more important to have a better story than just saying, I got it out on Twitter. I got credit from it from trade rumors or an aggregate site. And then, you know, whatever. And that's kind of where we are. You asked me about one of the changes is that we've definitely in all sports reporting, you have a model where the national writer will be plugged into everybody. I mean, I'm plugged in with the Reds and I have certain sources inside and outside the Reds, but a national writer like Ken Rosenthal or John Heyman, Jeff Passan have sources all over baseball. All they have to do is write one tweet <laughs> and then move on. And then their day's done. They, they got that scoop. Now they're, they got credit for it. They move on to other stuff. And I think for me, and other local beat writers, you you still have to report a story and and go through that process. So, as much as I love scoops, I'm very competitive. I hate losing stories to national people, to local colleagues. I respect all of them, but you hate to have it happen. So you do want a scoop, but at the same time, you have to realize that scoop is yours for seconds, minutes. Very rarely can you get a scoop and have it sit solely from you for 24 hours. It just doesn't happen anymore. Absolutely. It seems like as soon as that first tweet goes out by someone, everyone else is calling all their sources, making sure, oh, it's true, sources confirm, all that sort of stuff yeah. happens. Especially it's a rat race. And world. honestly, who knows? I mean, who knows? It could be if I did it and then reporter A had it 15 seconds later, <laughs> you know, does it really matter? Mm -hmm. But again, you want to have it. You, you, I'm, I'm a competitive person. I want to be right. I also want to be first, but being right is much more important. Absolutely. I know we did just mention Joey Votto. So David, I know you had a question about Joey Votto. If you want to chime in quickly. Yes. Um, speaking of Joey Votto, uh, he had pretty much his send off in his last game. Do you think Joey Votto will retire this coming off season or will he sign with a different team in 2024 and play for them? I think he wants to play. It's just a question of will there be an offer? And I and I guess the market will tell him whether it's time to retire or not. If, if he doesn't get an offer, I don't see a situation where he's going to play and he may have to retire because certainly if he sits out for a year, it's going to be very hard to come back when he's 42. Uh, when, when you know, he's, he's going to turn 41 in September, it, it would be tough for him to come back. But on the other hand, I, I think at some point and be – because of his age and maybe because of his injury that he had the shoulder, his market may not fully develop until closer to spring training and, and teams will decide what they need. You know, at the moment with, with the reds, they didn't want to, they didn't want to make a move for him or, or pick up his option because they kind of view him as a part-time player. And that might be how other clubs view him. You know, I wouldn't fully hundred percent rule out the reds as, as being a chance to get him back before spring training. I, I would think, as long as the relationship is always positive and good, which it seems to be both sides left the crack, the door cracked open a, a little bit that maybe he could come back. I'm not expecting it. I think it's a single digit chance that that happens, but I think there's a, certainly a team out there that might want to take him uh, and take a flyer. And it's got to be a team though, that where he feels like he has a chance to win. I don't think he's just going to go sign with a, let's say the pirates and play out a season and, and not go to the playoffs. I think for him, his, his time is shortening, so he needs to get to the World Series. That's something that I think that he would like to do. I like Very it. That's why, 
I think that Toronto Blue Jays connection, everyone seems to be muddling around that a little bit. I know the Canada connection, they're a pretty good team. So we'll see what happens on that front as well. But speaking of reunions, it seems like you also reported the Reds at least had some interest in a Sonny Gray reunion. I know he signed with the rival Cardinals on a three-year 75 million. So sort of getting into more talking about the 2024 Reds, was it almost that that deal almost happened? And then you also mentioned that maybe they're in on Tyler Glass now. I know Shane Bieber's being out there in trade talks. So what is the state of the 2024 Reds pitching needs? Well, they have, really, they have six starters for five spots. And, and the one thing that really kind of, the one thing they have in common is none of them have more than two years of service time. <laughs> Hunter Green and and uh, probably has the most. He's had two full seasons. Great, you know. Then you have Graham Ashcraft, and then you have Nick Lodolo, who's had two injury-filled seasons. Then you have Andrew Abbott and Brandon Williamson, two lefties that came up and, and did very well, I think, especially Abbott. And then Connor Phillips came up at the end and had some nice starts and had some not 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 so nice starts. But he's very well thought of in this organization. So there's there's a, there's a need to have a starter, especially after they had the 28th ranked rotation. Uh, ERA and a lot of injuries. I think they really would like to have a dependable guy that you can plug in that can, especially if they hope to contend that has been through this before knows what, what it's, what is needed, what it takes to, to, to plow through a start. And I think that would be what they need. And I, all the names that you mentioned, whether it's Glasnow or Bieber or was it Logan Gilbert? You know, there's a lot, there's names out there. Dylan Cease, they all would seem to be fits for the Reds in some fashion. Uh, the free agent market, it would probably be a lower tier guy. Now that Sonny Gray's off the board, maybe a reunion with Wade Miley would work because it would be a shorter term contract. I don't think they want to sign a starter for more than three years because that would uh, hamper the, the the development of the, those young starters. So finding a guy that they can have for one or two years would seem to be a fit for them. I have to ask, because it seems like he might fit the criteria, although there is obviously other stuff. Is a Bauer reunion possible? I don't know. I, I, there's a lot of other that, – that all the things that have to go with him have little to do with pitching. Yep. And as you you know, you already know his history, and I, I don't know if that would be I, – I couldn't, I couldn't say whether he would be welcome back to MLB or not, and certainly not with the Reds. I, I couldn't say. Yeah. I haven't heard anything, I'll tell you that. Yeah, but it's definitely an interesting scenario. Potter, are you back with us? I think I should be. Um, In in terms of, you know, you know, big names concerning the Reds, I guess Ellie De La Cruz, you know, the the, the phenom from last year, um, you know, he kind of cooled off from from when he made his break in the the bigs. Um, But is he kind of, is he going to be the center chip for a while, do you think, for the Reds? Are they going to try to build the franchise eventually around him as their, you know, as their guy? Or, or do you think that, you know, maybe he won't be, you know, the Reds guy forever? It remains to be seen. He certainly has the most uh, upside and, and he's explosive. And he's certainly a guy that everyone wants to see play once. I mean, he's he's worth the price of admission because you never know what you're going to get. That's kind of what makes it fun. You don't know if he's going to hit a, a mind bending homer, if he's going to steal home, if he's going to hit for the cycle. There's so many things he can do. However, it remains to be seen whether you can build a team around him because he's had uh, basically uh, two-thirds of a season right now, and he struggled through the last 
second half of the season entirely. Um, he has a lot of work to do before he can be an established player that you could say, I'm going to build a team around him. There's other young stars on that team as well. Matt McLean, Encarnacion Strand, Noel V. Marte, um, Spencer Steer. There, there's players on that team that are young. All of them would seem to be pieces you could build around, but certainly L.A. De La Cruz, if he pans out, would be that superstar that you'd want to build a club around. He's a good guy. He's very smart. He, he can hit well. He can. He's His fielding could use improvement, but he's also a dynamic fielder. He's got that rifle arm. There's so many things he can do on the field. So I, it would make sense that if, they, if he does what they hope he does, you would build around him, yeah. And then you did just mention a lot of infielders. So does that unfortunately mean that probably the end of Jonathan India's time in Cincinnati? Not necessarily. Nick Crawl, the president of uh, Baseball Ops, has certainly said that he's open to listening to any offer, but he's not like feeling like he's forced to trade him either because they could use the depth. And and India does carry some extra weight in the sense that he's got leadership capabilities. He's he's the guy that will play through any injury, and I've seen it. He's this guy has been banged up in many ways, and he still plows through most of the time. And there is a value to that, especially now that they've moved on from Votto. There's there's not a lot of veteran leadership in that clubhouse. So you got Luke Maley, you have Lucas Sims, and maybe India, and those are the kind of leaders you need in the clubhouse sometimes. And he's a chemistry guy and things like that, but we'll see. It, it's it certainly makes sense that they could move him so they could have De La Cruz and, and McLean be the the middle infield pairing, but it's not a lock that he's going to get traded. I like it. Maybe he moves into that utility role as well. He could be a second base, third base, plug him in at DH or wherever he needs to go. But I know another one of the cool things of your job as a beat reporter is you get to vote for some pretty important BBWA awards. And this year, if I have it correct, you did have an MVP vote for the National League. So what was that process like? Take us through sort of how do you determine? And then obviously it seems like Ronald Acuna was a pretty unanimous choice this year. Yeah, every year we we local chapters, we each get two votes for the, the BBWA awards. Uh, you know, there's two people that vote for MVP, Rookie of the Year, Manager, and Cy Young. Uh, the president, the local chapter president, we, which we rotate every year, I happen to be the chapter president. So I assign myself the MVP vote. And the other one went to Gordon Whitmire from the, the Cincinnati Enquirer. And so I have either voted since I've been, I got a eligible to join the BBWAA. I've either voted for Cy Young or MVP so far. I think it's five or six years now. Maybe more. I can't remember. Um, and, you know, this year, it, it I thought it would be, I honestly thought it would be a, a closer vote than unanimous. <laughs> I thought Mookie Betts might get some first place votes. I remember reading all the the things about him about them and their numbers but at the end uh, Acuña's numbers just really stood out to me and I I I couldn't see myself voting any other way than I did so um but generally you know you get the vote you you know it's coming you know you're you're focused on the red stuff majority of the time but you certainly keep aware of, of what the rest of the league is doing and and when September kit kind of hits and a field is definitely starting to materialize. You really start looking at it closer. And then as you get to the last two weeks, you start maybe crunching numbers or you, you start looking a little closer. And the, uh, the harder part is sometimes not necessarily the top part of the ballot, but it's the bottom half. It's, it's the five through 10 and, and trying to figure out who deserves votes. And, you know, some nowadays we're, we're with the, the votes being public. There's a lot of vote shaming. 
<laughs> you, you don't want to be critic, you know, criticized for your ninth place vote just because you, you decided someone deserved a vote. You know, you know they're not going to win MVP, but you, you think they deserve at least a little recognition for the season they had. So you just do your best to to to, to do it. You, you you try not to you know you don't throw any bones to the hometown players. You you, you look at them just as critically as you would anyone else. Um, certainly I have more experience watching the Reds players, uh, than I do anyone else. So I, if I do vote for them, I do think they've earned it, but they don't automatically get a vote for me because I cover the Reds. Yeah. I know Dylan and I were, were happy to see uh, polar bear Pete on your ballot. I think you might've been the only, the only writer to, to vote for him, but Dylan and I were, when we were going through it, we were, we were happy to see that. <laughs> I, I was, I, I was surprised I wasn't on Island on that one. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think I was, you know, I think of him and I wrote in Schwarber. Schwarber had to be a write-in vote. He wasn't on the uh, – it's a drop-down ballot, like electronic ballot is a drop menu. And he. It, I was surprised his name wasn't on it, but I decided to write him in, and I did give Alonzo my uh, my eighth-place vote, and I was I was stunned that I was the only one that voted for him. But there were a lot of good candidates for that area of the ballot. I, I, I just – like I said, I look at the numbers the best I can and try to come up with the decisions. I love it. And then one of the other things, I don't think you have a vote yet for the Hall of Fame, but correct me if I'm wrong on that front, but Brandon Phillips is on the ballot. I don't think he's a Hall of Famer, but it's always fun to see all those guys that you've covered for a lot of years that eventually actually make their way onto the ballot. Yeah, it's certainly uh, how life has taken me that I've been around long enough that I've seen players <laughs> start with the Reds. Start, They didn't start his career with the Reds, but he certainly, I saw him when, when he joined the Reds in 06. That was my first season. And here he is now on the ballot. I know he's not a Hall of Famer to me. And if I had a ballot, I would not have voted for him. Uh, so I, I would be surprised if he sticks around to get the 5% needed to stick around to next year. Um, but he had a great career. And he certainly cemented to me as the second best red second baseman of all time. And he's certainly one of the better ones to have done the job over the career. But I don't think he has a lot of the numbers uh, that would warrant Hall of Fame consideration. I love it. And then we have two fun questions to throw at you here to wrap up the interview. If you're game for them, we've got some fun tangential baseball type stuff. All right. All right. So the first one we've been asking everyone, and unfortunately I don't think your reds are going to be in play here, but opening day Shohei Otani will be playing for be a plot twist. If you said reds, <laughs> that'd be funny. Um, I don't have any way of, I don't have any inside scoop, but I'm going to go on a limb and say it's going to be a team that we maybe weren't expecting at first. Like, and I'm going to say Texas. I like it. That would, the world champions get stronger. That would definitely yeah. add some thumb to their lineup. And then the second one we have for you, sort of an appreciation for hopping on the podcast with us today. We allow our guests to determine the future of the show and you get to nominate someone else from the industry that you know that you think could be a cool next interview. You know what? He, he's, he's retired. But he's a he's a baseball uh, savant in a lot of ways, and not to poke. That's a I know that's another website, but uh, I would say T.R. Sullivan. He was the former Rangers beat writer, and he he's been he covered baseball for about forty years between newspapers and MLB.com, and he was always a great uh, influence on 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 the younger writers at MLB.com, including me. And uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed working with him when I did. So I, and I think he would be a kind of guy that I think young people that want to work in baseball should get to know because he he really does try to you know he tried to help and mentor younger writers and younger people in baseball. And I and I think having an opportunity to talk to younger people would be something he might like. Absolutely. But he's retired. I don't know if he would do it or no. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, fingers crossed we can make it happen. We really appreciate you hopping on this morning. 
with us today talking all things Reds and BBWA. But David, Matt, unless there's anything else you guys want to throw in here at the end, I think we're all good. So thank you so much for joining us, Mark. I'm not going to say Mr. Sheldon. And until the next time, the side is retired.